This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Okay, so first of all, I'd really like to welcome everybody. Although you've been welcomed before, you were welcomed yesterday by Ratnadarni last night in the Shrine Room and then this morning at the 7 o'clock meditation and again at the uh, 10.30 puja. But if you've arrived since then, welcome. And even if you've been welcomed before, welcome again. So it's very exciting to have so many Dharmacharanis here. It's the first... Dharmacharini event of this scale that we've had here. It's first, we've had a regional order weekend here for women from the northern region, but it's the first time we've had a national, now called area order weekend. And it's fantastic. I saw Banti yesterday actually at lunchtime, and he said, um, Oh, well, you've got big weekend coming up. And I said, Yes. And he said, And how many ladies will there be? I said, Very few, actually. <laughs> <laughs> But there'll be a lot of women. <laughs> and um, he said, oh, how many? And I said, well, I think there's about 145, 146. He said, oh, much more than the men. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> anyway, he was genuinely very, very pleased to hear that so many women were coming along on this weekend. And he wished as well for the weekend. Uh, he was very pleased to hear that we were doing the theme that we were doing of Adistana, and he said, mm, I believe the men did that in November. So there you go. You gain some, you lose some. <laughs> it's true, actually. I think the Men's National Order Weekend had the same theme, which is good, actually, because it's the first year of us functioning here, and it seems a good theme, really. So it was, seemed like a, a good theme to, to have. So you might have seen, you probably haven't, actually, but some of you might have seen that this talk is called Business as Usual. Adistana and the Bodhicitta. So there were a couple of reasons why it was called that. One was that people kept saying to me, oh, I suppose you'll be talking about the Bodhicitta. <laughs> business as usual. But also because, in a way, it is business as usual. This is a new project. It's a new place. But it's not really new in another sense. It's the continuation of years and years and years of building things up. And to be here for a women's event like this, a Dharmacharni event, well, it's new because it's the first time that we've taken this place, taken this space for this event. But it's certainly not new in terms of being a first women's order event because it, we've had hundreds of them over the years. So we've had women's order weekends since the early 1980s. When I was first ordained, we had our order weekends were always mixed. And I can't remember exactly at what point that changed, but it was sometime in the early 80s, maybe 82, something like that. And when, what that meant in some ways when we started to have our single-sex order weekends was that the women's order weekend was about 15 people. There were about 15 of us would sit in a room, usually at the LBC, and we all knew each other incredibly well. We'd all lived together, or we'd worked together, or we'd just known each other for quite a long time. But nevertheless, for me anyway, it was slightly strange to be just with those people, in the sense that for me, the order weekends that we'd had before had felt really special, being quite big, i.e. there were about 150 or 200 people or something. And at first it felt like for the women's wing to try and build up that kind of intensity it was going to take a long time. It did take a while, but hey, look, you know, we've got 145, 150 Dharmacharnis, and that's only the Dharmacharnis from the UK and Ireland. We one or two that have slipped in from Europe, and very welcome they are. <laughs> so, in a sense, it strikes me that we have, what we have here is continuity as well as innovation, and that there's something very satisfying about that. So it's business as usual in the sense of uh, women coming together, women practicing together. It's built on years and years and years of us doing that in different places, at different times. So it does feel, in a sense, 
not at all new. It feels quite normal just to be standing here talking to, looking at these faces. Many of them I've seen many, many times. And yet it does also feel historic to be here in this place. So I think both of those things are true. So continuity and change. So what I'm going to do is just share some reflections and thoughts on the nature of Adistana. And for those of you who came to the dedication weekend, you'll recognise quite a bit of the talk because I'm going to say quite a few of the same things. But you probably don't remember them anyway because it was months ago and many of you weren't able to come to that. So, so Adistana, you might have seen on the web page, has a definition. Uh, it's a particular definition which was chosen by Banti. So the name Adistana was chosen by Banti for this place and for this project. So not just the geographical location, but the project that we're trying to build and give birth to here. And he chose it, it's from Snellgrove's critical study on the Hivajra Tantra. That's where he found the particular translation of Adistana that he liked. So it says, from its literal meaning of a site, residence or position, the word Adistana is then applied to the power pertaining to such a position. It can therefore mean the power which belongs to divine form and in this sense comes near to the conception of grace. It can also refer to the power experienced in meditation or through recitation of mantra. In that it may be transmitted by a spiritual teacher to his disciples or her disciples, it may also be translated as blessing. So I think blessing is the term that most of us have taken from that as, as the meaning, the kind of core meaning of Adistana. People talk about it as a place of blessings. And I think it's a really apt, appropriate name. In fact, the more time goes on and the more we explore this, the more amazed I am actually at just how incredibly apt it is as a name. I mean, I liked it anyway, but... We had a college, public preceptors college meeting here quite recently. And in that, we talked a bit about Adistana. And the more we explored it and kind of talked about ad, what Adistana means and is, I don't know, it just felt like the penny was dropping more and more for more of us, just how particularly apt a name it is. And uh, it, part of that is that it's a site or a residence so, of course, first and foremost, it's Banti's residence. So you probably know Banti resides just across there in the Urgian Annex, as it's called. And uh, when we got here, that was a complete ruin, that little building. In fact, the first time we looked around, Ratnadarni thought this is probably a good place for Banti's home. And others of us weren't so sure. And then we had to kind of rethink and we thought of somewhere else. And then Banti came and had a look and he said that was what he wanted. So that was where he, where he went. But because it really was almost the most ruined part of the site, it took quite a lot of work to get it there, get him there. And uh, Banti decided he wanted to move as soon as possible, which also meant that uh, we could sell Majumaloka a bit sooner, which was good. But it really put an incredible strain on the team here and the workers here to try and get the place ready. Somehow, miraculously, they managed it. And Banti moved in in February, as probably most of you know. So, in fact, he moved in on the weekend of the International Order Convention in Bogaya, which felt kind of auspicious that quite a lot of us from all around the world were gathered together in Bodhgaya, which in it is its own Adistana, in a sense is the Adistana from which any other Adistana will grow, will, will come, will flow. And we were all sitting there and uh, we got the message that through wonderful modern technology that Banti had moved in. So that was pretty fantastic. He d hadn't yet named it, I think, at that point. I think it was after he moved. It was announced at the convention as well. So while we were there in Borgaya, Banti moved in here and we were told that the name was going to be Adistana. So for me, they're very connected events. In my mind, the kind of growth of this place is very connected with Bodhgaya 
and with, having been there with the Indian order and people from all around the world, there was something very special about that and kind of thinking back to this building site in Hereford seemed kind of a bit of a juxtaposition and yet marvellously apt. So Bante moved in in February and he struggled a bit having moved in. It had quite an effect on his health, which I think most of you know. He already wasn't very well before he moved. He hadn't been sleeping. And it's taken him quite a while. When I saw him yesterday, I was struck by how much better he's looking at the moment, actually. And you catch a little glimpse of him out having a walk sometimes. And you can see that he's gained in strength over the last couple of months. Because there was a point not long after I moved here in April where I thought, my goodness, you know, I don't know if we're going to have Banty with us for an awful lot longer. But he seems to have rallied and he's been seeing lots of people over the last few weeks, so which is wonderful. And I think m many people that have come to the site, whether it's been for an event, for the opening weekend, or just coming to visit, we've had quite a few visitors, people just coming to either see Banty or have a look at the place. They do seem to be very moved by the fact that Banty's present there. It's almost like his presence is its kind of strange, actually, but he's kind of seen around less, and yet I have this sense that his presence is becoming bigger or something. Maybe that's what happens. Maybe something, you know, somebody is the, are less physically present for many people. He's taken on almost more of a kind of... I don't know if it's archetypal or if it's mythic or if... I don't know, really. I don't mean to pin it towards. But I do get that sense that many people are feeling that and actually feeling quite strongly affected by being so close. So in a way, we are here by Banti's grace and Banti's here by the Buddha's grace. So we have that sense of transmission, of lineage, as it were, from Banti, from the Buddha through Banti to us. And that is what the blessings, uh, the blessings come from that sense of grace, that sense of, of flow of energy. Um, and personally, I feel very blessed to be living here. Now, who thought I would have ever said that? <laughs> I feel blessed to be living in rural Herefordshire. <laughs> My goodness, anybody can change. So, I mean, seriously, I feel very blessed at having found the Dharma and having found this particular uh, community to practice within. So I feel very blessed to have a place that can be, uh, can offer something to that community. So a few other meanings from the Sanskrit dictionary, the Moni Williams of Adistana, that I quite like. There's a whole, there's pages, there's quite a lot of meanings, but I chose a few that I like particularly. Standing by, being at hand, Resting upon a basis and the standing place of the warrior. That seemed to be the one that most people remembered from this talk before. A number of people said to me they remembered that. There's something about being at hand that I really like for this place as well. Because hopefully this is a place that people can use as a resource. So I like in that sense of being at hand, being available responding to a need. But I like the idea of the standing place of the warrior. I like the idea of Banti as warrior. I like the idea of us as warriors. Warriors, of course, for peace and love in a world that so much needs those values. So I'm not going to say much about how we ended up being here because it's been talked about, it's been in other talks, and also I think on Sunday, Ratnadani might say a bit more about the practical aspect of here. But just very briefly, you'll recall that Banti went to the library. He's got this. <laughs> End of. I won't say any more than that. Um, well, yeah, we'll say actually that it strikes me here as well that we have almost business as usual in the sense of continuity because this place was only made possible because we could sell Majumaloka and we could sell the other properties in Birmingham and they were made possible through people's generosity and through the generosity of many, many people in the movement over the years. So it really does 
come down to belonging to all of us in that sense. I think we did. I think we did good. I think it's a good buy. I think it's a, you know buy as in purchase. It was a good purchase. Um, some of us were quite keen on a different one a bit before. Quite disappointed when that fell through. But actually, overall, on balance, it was good that that happened because this is a much better and more appropriate site. Anyway, there's going to be all sorts of aspects to this place, study aspects, practice, meditation, um, people coming together to discuss things, meetings will happen here. Um, it's a home, as it were, for the Preceptors College. So again, I think Ratnadani might say a bit more on Sunday about the relationship between the college and Adistana. But it technically belongs to the Preceptors College because it's held by the Preceptors College Trust, um, which is made up of members of the college. So it's held in trust by a few trustees on behalf of the Preceptors College, but that's held on behalf of the order. Yeah. So technically it is the home of the Preceptors College. A few of us are living here, hopefully more will over time. And it's a home for the International Council meeting, another big part of the structures that we're putting in place at the moment in this particular time of transition in the order. I've said this before in talks, many of you will have heard it, but somebody once said to me uh, in an inter-Buddhist set, set up, they said, oh yeah, the Tibetan groups are famous for ritual. And the Zen groups are famous for meditation. And the FWBO is famous for meetings. <laughs> so it seemed only right to have a home for meetings. Actually, I think it's good that we do meetings. Because meetings, they're not just meetings. Well, some of them might be, but hopefully they're not just meetings for the sake of meetings. And hopefully... They're not just a case of perpetuating more words and talking, which I know sometimes people think they are and some people really don't, you know, want to participate in them, which is fine. But if we didn't have some people willing to participate in them, it would be a bit harder to keep things kind of running smoothly. And uh, one of the things for me that I find very inspiring about us as a community is our real desire to reach consensus. Consensus in a sensible way. I mean, sometimes it means ending up somebody making a decision, but it's taking people's views and opinions and needs into account. So whenever I hear that, oh, the FWBO or Tree Ratna is really good at meetings, I think, yes, we try to be good at meetings because in some ways we're building community. And what we're doing when we're coming together is we're trying to create the conditions for community to be held and honoured. And of course, they do some people's heads in. And it's fine. I mean, no, everybody, we've got an order of 1,800 and something now. I mean, we're never going to get 1,800 people sitting around trying to make a decision. Thank the Buddha. Because it would be horrendous. But nevertheless, we are trying to put structures in place through which um, decisions, etc., or even just opinions can be heard coming from people at their local situation, working together, and that coming together at a national level and at an international level. So I mentioned this because I do think it's very relevant to Adistana. So it's not just because I happen to be one of the people that like meetings. Well, I used to. I think I've had it with them, actually. But anyway, I'm one of the people who goes to a lot of meetings. And uh, it strikes me that the particular structures that we're trying to put into place are the two-way structures. They're to allow for information, as it were, coming into the centre, but they're also to allow for Adistana to flow freely outwards from the centre. And not just from the centre out and from the outward in, but in a kind of more of a dance than that. So that all round the mandalas are all, you know, our mandalas made up of hundreds of little mandalas. And each of those little mandalas in relation to each other can be homes for Adistana and then be in relationship with each other so that Adistana can flow freely throughout the, the whole kind of structure. <laughs> so, so, anyway. Um, so, yeah, this is going to be a home for meetings in a way. 
which I wanted to say all that because I think sometimes when you say, well, what do you do at Adistan? And you say it's a home for meetings. It's like, you know, or like, that sounds very interesting. <laughs> but actually, for me, that's a deeply inspiring thing to have somewhere where we can come together. And when we are here together, we can start to really build up a sense of this being our home and practicing together here and working together here. And also some of us who are currently holding international positions in the movement and the order are also resident here. So in that sense, it's also a home. <laughs> it's my home. Thank you. So one way of thinking... Oh, yeah, now another important part of having us here is um, to be a home for pilgrims, a place for pilgrims. I always went to burst into song whenever I say that and I can see Kula Prabha's laughing because she knows exactly which song I'm thinking of bursting into it. But I won't. But the idea of having a place for pilgrims really inspires me. I didn't, it didn't inspire me at first. I kind of thought, mm, mm, I'm not sure about that. But actually having Banti here and already having had some people come to visit Banti and just seeing how a 15-minute visit to Banti the effect it can have, particularly for people coming from overseas. So in the last week, Banti's seen somebody from Australia who's, who was visiting and somebody from Mexico who was visiting. And for both of them, it was extraordinary for them to just have that opportunity. You know, and the Mexican woman, she's, she asked for ordination about three months ago. She's in her 30s, young woman. She came over specially. She fitted other things around it with a hope that she might see Banti. And if she couldn't, at least to see where he lives. I find it quite moving, actually. You know, and she sort of came and stayed for a couple of days. She's a young woman from Mexico. But she just went back. You know, she was radiant, actually. So I'm happy that we can be that for people and that they do have somewhere. And even when Banti's not with us any longer, he'll be buried here. And I think people will come... I meant to do a pilgrimage to that. He wants us to create a situation where people can come and sit and reflect upon impermanence. So I think, you know, that would be quite an important part in the future. Anyway, so that was by way of introduction. <laughs> uh, I wanted to just mention a, a way of thinking about Adistana that I find very inspiring. And it's been talked about quite a lot, actually, since the opening weekend. Uh, I talked about it in the opening weekend and Sabuti talked quite a lot about it in the meet, the retreat situation that there was in August for chairs and metro conveners and presidents and I can't even remember, basically. Lots of people, 120-something of them. And uh, that's a way of thinking about this as a home for the continuation of the four lineages that Banti has given us or left with us. Well, he hasn't left them yet. He's handed them on still holding them himself. And the first time I heard him talk about this, it might not have been the first time, but the first time I heard him talk about this was in a college meeting in 2008. And it was just before the publication of the What is the Western Buddhist Order paper. I think that's right. And we had a little kind of special meeting at the college. Banti asked as many of us, the public precept as it could, to come together because he went to talked to us about the paper before it was sent out. Oh, actually, it must have been in early 2009. So we all kind of got together and we had a question and answer with Banti a couple of times. And I think it was in that question and answer that he got a question about lineage. And he said to us that he felt he had given us four lineages. So they were the lineages of teaching, of practices, of inspiration... And initially, I think he said responsibility, and then he called it institutions, or it might have been the other way around. It was the other way around. He first of all talked about the lineage of institutions. So that's what I'm going to talk about for the rest of the talk, really, are those, those four lineages, and how can we, as an order, kind of hold those lineages, keep them alive, and kind of take them into the future. So the first one, I'm not going to say very much about them, but the first one is the lineage of teachings. So, of course, they're the teachings of the Buddha, but they're the particular teachings of the Buddha that Banti has chosen to highlight, 
to emphasise, to give centrality to. And he's made it very clear that other teachings of the Buddha, of course, we're not leaving them out, but he asks us to look at them and see how they relate to the central doctrine of conditionality. So this is all laid out, partly in the What is the Western Buddhist Order, but it's much more thoroughly laid out in revering and relying on the Dharma. So he asks us to look at the teachings. When we come across teachings, look at them in relationship to conditionality. And, you know, when you think about how much Bhante's done over the years that he's been teaching, one of the things that we've talked about doing here is looking back at some of the early seminars. There's some fantastic seminars that Bhante did in the late 70s, early 80s, around that kind of time. He did, well, actually, it was a longer period than that. It's probably into the late 80s. And he did a whole series of seminars on texts. So he chose texts and he used them as the basis. Now, many of them have been transcribed. They've been made into book form. They've been brought together. Amazingly, they've been brought together and edited, which I must say I think is a fantastic task. I really take my hat off to those of you including Vidya Devi, who's sitting here, who had so much to do with that work. And right back to Silabhadra, people who have really took, really took that on and made those uh, seminars available. And fantastically, every single seminar is available on Free Buddhist Audio. You can go into Free Buddhist Audio and find everything. And um, I sometimes think, and all Banti's talks, and they're all there, and I know that these days in Mitra study, for example, a lot of people don't actually listen to the tapes anymore. Or the tapes, you know. <laughs> tapes. <laughs> they don't listen to the audio. Uh, they often read the text. And in a way, it's an easier way to do it because you've got it in front of you, you can write on it, you can mark it. But there was something quite <laughs> extraordinary about sitting in Mitra study and listening to all those tapes. And uh, by the time, I don't know, it was a point I realised I'd listened to every single tape, every single talk. I made it a practice to do that. I've lost it now a bit because there's so many, but, you know, for quite a long time, I just made it a real practice to just listen. And there was something about the act of listening that in itself, at times, you know, it might put you to sleep occasionally, but there was also something awoke in most of us, I think, as we listen to them. So I do recommend it. And uh, we've wondered about looking at some of the texts that Banti chose to do seminars on and doing some seminars here so that that material can be uh, explored again and kind of brought into relationship with now, as it were. So some really good stuff in that. And then there's the lineage of practices. So, oh, again, in, uh, in the What is the Western Buddhist Order, Bhante talks about practices that he has given us. And he talks about the specific meditation practices. But he says it's not just meditation. It's a broader, there's a broader sense to it. Although, obviously, to a great extent, the emphasis has been looking at continuity in practice of meditation. And I think it's a really interesting topic at this point in our history. Maybe it's always been an interesting topic. Maybe it always will be. Maybe there will always be something that we're looking at and saying, how does this fit in? But I think one of the important things is we need to learn how to do that, how to look at things and wonder how they fit in. So recently, Sabuti was very keen that we start to look at and talk about commonality of practice. So he'd brought some of that into that chairs, Mitra conveners, etc. meeting. And also just been trying to seed conversations about this in different ways in different places. And I think it's a really important thing to be thinking about at the moment. Um, to think about how different practices, meditative, but broader than that, but particularly meditation practices, that are coming into the movement, how do they integrate? How do they come into relationship with a system of practice that Banti's given us? And it's a pretty wide system. It's not a rigid system by any means. It's extraordinarily broad, really. You know, I've actually, I know quite a lot of people who meditate in other communities. And frankly, we're pretty broad. We're a pretty broad church, as it were. 
you know, we don't have just a single line of practices like some, some communities do. And that's where they find their purity. They talk about their purity of lineage of practice coming through the fact that everybody will do the same practice or a very, very small number of practices which stem from a single practice. And then on the other end of the scale, there are groups, communities, movements who are very wide open and seem to have very little that hold them together in terms of practices or even in terms of community, I think. So we're somewhere in the middle of that. or I don't know if we're in the middle. We're on that spectrum somewhere. So we do have a system of practice. We have a system of spiritual life with stages to it, which aren't linear stages, but aspects of that, uh, aspects of looking at our spiritual life. So it's really important that when we come across a practice and it's useful for us, how does it actually fit into that? And maybe especially before we teach it, thinking about how it sort of fits into our system. Now, I feel slightly, you know, I say that, and I kind of hope that nobody sitting here is hearing that thinking, you know, and feeling that they're being asked to be narrower, because I don't think that is what I was, certainly not what I'm asking. All I'm asking is that we stay in communication with each other, and that we find some way, some forum, some fora, in which we can communicate with each other, and kind of build on each other's experience and practice and insights and ex, you know explorations and experiences that we can actually make them a kind of a whole rather than a fragmentation so uh, we've been looking at ways of trying to come together and set up i think there's an idea to set up a a small panel in the new year to look at practices which will have different people in it and it's only a, a start it's an experimentation of something and starting to kind of just get a bit of a sense of how can we be in communication and it seems very much in line with this idea that Banti talked about of the pillar of innovation or experimentation so in the end I'm going to just segue from the four lineages to the five pillars for a moment. So we're having five pillars as part of the second lineage, just to keep you oriented. Um, some of you remember, Banta gave a talk on an FWBO day, as far as I remember, probably in the early 90s, called the five pillars of the FWBO. So I imagine quite a lot of you in this room were at that talk. And he gave, he talked about five pillars. I'm just going to briefly remind you what those pillars are so that you see where experimentation comes in. So the first pillar Bandy talked about was the pillar of ideas. And he talks about ideas in the platonic sense. He talks about ideas in the sense of values that move us. He talks about justice, for example, as an idea. So it's not an idea in the abstract, purely philosophical sense, but it's a philosophical idea that actually has, that moves people, that moves us, and can actually change life, as it were. It can change views, it can change people. And he talks about, he, he gives lists of ideas like evolution, science even, um, and how at one time they're controversial and then they become interesting but not so controversial and then they become almost the establishment which is quite an interesting sort of thing isn't it how that happens and how something that seems very new and exciting you look back to it a few years later and you think yeah and because it seems so normed it's become the norm in a certain way and he talks about relativity as an idea that changed people's view of the world. And then in the same way there are ideas within Buddhism. And again, he talks about the idea of conditionality. So ideas in that sense. So the kind of views, the, the underlying principles, the metaphysics, what's underneath what we do. He also talks about ideas common to us as a tradition, as an order, as a, a community. For example, spiritual friendship. So it's quite interesting because in this, I, spiritual friendship is an idea. Yeah. But then we go into the second pillar, which is the pillar of practice. And in there we find spiritual friendship. So obviously things don't stay in the realm of ideas, but they, they're put into action. They affect how we are in the world. So the pillar of practices, all our meditation practices, our devotional practices, ethics, dana, friendship. 
So again, they're practices that unite us as a community, that hold us together as a community, that we ascribe to, as it were, as a community. And then he talks about the pillar of institutions. So I'm just going to say briefly about that, because I think, again, it's relevant to us here at Adistana and, in fact, to the lineages. So he says institutions are principally of two kinds, those whose specific purpose is mundane and those whose specific purpose is spiritual. Some fulfil both purposes to some degree. So that made me think, actually, about institutions. And it's, I think it's quite interesting because I think it's so easy for something to be mistaken for the other. You know, I think it's easy to look at what we might think of as a spiritual community, but unless it's alive, it can actually just be a very mundane institution. See what I mean? You know, if we think of something, we look at something and think, that's a spiritual institution. But actually, if the people in it aren't really wholeheartedly involved or engaged, well, then it isn't. It's going to be a mundane institution, isn't it? And then there are things that might be looked at as mundane institutions, like the International Council of the Tree Ratna. But they're not. Hopefully they're serving a purpose which is not mundane. <coughs> Excuse me. So I think it's pretty crucial that all of us, we're all of us involved in institutions in some way or another. The very fact that we're here, we're engaged in an institution known as National Order Weekends or Area Order Weekends. So we're here, we're participating in something institutional. We need to really make sure that it stays alive, that it has at its heart the flame of passion for the Dharma and of engagement with spiritual life. Otherwise, it's just like, oh, I'll just turn up and I'll see some of my pals and the food's not bad and... You know, I mean, I'm caricaturing slightly, but I think in any of our institutions, we probably have to stay alive to that. And on the other hand, not dismiss some of our institutions as purely mundane if they're actually attempting to create channels for the flame to stay alive. Uh, okay. And in, in that talk, Banti talks about our three main spiritual institutions, the public centre, the residential spiritual community, and the team-based right livelihood business, a.k.a. co-ops, so that you can call them the three Cs. So it's just interesting that in the early 90s, Banti was talking about those as our you know, spiritual institutions. And these days, I think it's quite hard to say that in a sense in the sense of um, expecting that everybody's going to be involved in them because many people aren't. Many people don't live in residential communities, don't work in right livelihoods. Many do, some don't. And many don't have that much in the order, don't have that much involvement in a local centre for whatever reason, geographical, circumstantial, or just that's not the phase that they're currently in. So I guess, what does that mean? What did those institutions mean? You know, what is it that they were there for? What was their purpose? So how do we hold what the purpose was if we're not actually participating in the form, as it were? And, you know, people talk about the future of the order and movement after Banti's death. Quite a lot. It's a common topic, actually, at the moment. I'm often in conversations when I travel around, people say to me, do you know what's going to happen after Banty's death? And I have to say, well, no, I don't exactly. I mean, I kind of have hopes and concerns, but you know, we're trying our best to put things into place. But, well, in a way, it's in everybody's hands, really, isn't it? And, uh, and people sometimes say, oh, you know, I'm really worried because for this reason or for that reason, or, you know, people are doing different things or they're living differently and stuff. And I think for me, if there's anything that causes me concern and makes me wonder whether we have a future beyond a you know, couple of generations or something, it's to do with community. But it's not necessarily to do with residential community. Although, you know, I personally find residential community a really good way of having that experience. But I think it's something about community that concerns me. Because... How do we keep our sense of community over such 
diversity of culture, of class, of um, age, generation, country, etc., etc. How do we hold that? When I said at the beginning, when I first, you know, first order weekends I was at, I actually knew everybody well. When I, first, I used to get Shabda, I knew everybody who I was reading about in Shabda. I mean, even I can't say that anymore. You know, I still know a lot of people in the order, but nobody, I can't think there's anybody in the order who would now be able to say they know everybody in the order. What I think we probably do still have is something like just one degree of separation, maybe two degrees of separation. We're probably all still linked in enough to somebody who's linked in to somebody. So I think we still hold together as a community. But I kind of wonder further down the road, how is that going to happen? And I'd really like us to be thinking about that. How do we hold a community together in those kind of circumstances? And my train of thought's just gone there. Um, yeah, you know, oh yeah, I remember what I was going to say. Somebody pointed out at a meeting I was in recently, a meeting. I think it was actually the president's meeting. It might have been a college meeting. I think it was Nagabodi actually said he wondered if we all realised just how much our work together functions so well because of how long we've all known each other. And actually, in a way, I hadn't really thought of it. But in the college, for example, there are people in the college that I've known for 35 years. And they've known, other, they've known each other, some of them, for 40 years and more. It's a seriously long time. You know, and a lot of us, if I look around the room at the college, we've lived together, we've worked together, we've played together, we've slept together, we've had insomnia together, we've, you know, we've fought with each other, we've fallen out, come back into a relationship with each other. So actually, the bonds are quite, they're strong, they're strong. And obviously that isn't going to be reproduced. Most of us, when we first got to know each other, we were in our 20s. So we had that, you know, we had that possibility, as it were. Many people coming into the order now are just that little bit older, although some are still young. There's a couple of them there just kind of reminding me that they're still under 35, I believe. Um, I think there's only, am I right, that there's only two Dhammacharnis in the world under 35? There's Singamati, uh, who's not got long to go before she can't say that anymore, but she's got a wee while, a few years, a couple of years. And Shraddhavadri in India. To the best of my knowledge, the next generation above that is 35 and on in the women's wing. And actually, it's not a lot different with the men. There's not that many young men either. There's a few more, aren't there? But anyway. So there you go. There's a fact to think of, isn't it? So how do we get that sense of community? How do we encourage that to stay? And what does it actually mean in the current zeitgeist of our order and movement? Not giving you any answers, just asking questions. Um, and then we had the pillar of experiment, which is what I was getting to. Uh, so Banti talks about this quite specifically here. He says, an experiment is something planned. It is not done at random. It has a definite purpose. It's a result of serious thinking. Experiments should be a number of experienced people working together, a number of order members, and they should plan to test their hypothesis in accordance with the spirit of the movement. So that sounds very neat. Actually, I don't think it works like that quite often. That isn't often how it happens, is it? Often what happens is somebody in their own practice, uh, you know, they find something that works for them or they read something or they find they come across a particular teaching or a particular meditation that really works for them. And then generally speaking, they don't kind of set up an experiment with a number of people and they plan it and they get together and take notes and over time pursue it and present a paper to the order and, you know, it kind of doesn't happen like that, does it? And I don't think it's probably never going to happen quite like that because that's not really the nature of human beings. However, there's probably something in between that, um, 
structured an approach on the one hand, incompletely random on the other hand. So I guess it's worth thinking about that. And what can we do, each and every one of us, to try and think about how can any experiment or innovation that we're engaged with come into relationship? I think that's, for me, that's the main thing, isn't it? Is how does it come into relationship? And then how can it be assessed? And I don't mean, again, I don't mean assessed in a kind of, you know, tested... Assessed in a real, living, live way where people can share their experience and actually learn from each other and look at how does it fit into the spirit of our movement. How do the views of things coincide with the views of Buddhism, of the Dharma, of the Dharma as practised in our particular tradition? Okay. And then the last of the pillars, for the sake of completion, was the pillar of imagination, which I think is very connected with Adhisthana. I think the idea of Adhisthana, for me, is also very connected with the idea of something mythic, something magical, something that flows. And you might remember that in what is the Western Buddhist order, Bhante said, at the end, the very end, he says, there is something about the movement, the order, and even about me that is not easily definable. There is a touch of something that cannot be buttoned down, that cannot in the end be defined. Even the desire to button it down or define it is a mistake. Everyone will need to take care of that rather mysterious, indefinable spirit that gives the movement life and energy. Everyone must play their part in keeping the order and movement alive especially in terms of that indefinable element. So where's the magic? Where's the mystery? Where's that indefinable element? And how can Adistana, as a place, help participate in that? But the important thing is that that indefinable element, in many ways I think that is Adistana. It is that kind of indefinable magic that flows out through the order and movement. So all of that was on the second of the lineages. So that was in the lineage of practice. And then there was the lineage of inspiration. So this is a quote from Bhante. This is what he said at that college meeting. And then there's what I call the lineage of inspiration. Because from me to others, and from others to yet others, there flows something which isn't just the teachings just the practices. There's something above and beyond that which is communicated personally and which I know many people experience at the time of their ordination. So the inspiration needs to be there. That's the flame. That's the fire that keeps things alive. There was a great quote somebody said in the college meeting, which was from Mala, Gustav Mala. It was... Can, Either you guys remember it is like it's tradition. It's not a matter of worshipping the ashes. It's a matter of keeping the flame alive, of keeping the fire alive. So I thought that was really, really spot on, actually, for what we're trying to do. You know, when we talk about trying to look at innovation and try to bring it into relationship with the system and, you know, the continuity and Banti's teachings, you know, we're not actually trying to conserve the ashes of something dead. We're trying to be part of something that keeps the flame alive. Okay, and then the last of those lineages was the organisational lineage or the lineage of responsibility. I think organisational kind of works for me, actually, because what Banti said in that was there's the framework, the organisational lineage, the structures that need to be carried on and in some cases perhaps modified if they no longer fulfil their original purpose. So I think that's important to hold that. The structures, so we have structures. They need to be carried on, but they also need to be looked at. Are they working? Are they functioning? But that needs to be done, not in, again, not in a sense of, like, oh, I'm a bit fed up with that one. Don't think I'll do that anymore. But in a sense of really kind of like, putting it in relationship with, with the spirit that we try, the flame that we're trying to keep alive. <sighs> so my hope, 
is that Adi Stara, the place, can play an important role in that, in the continuation of those lineages. But also, I thinking about Adistana and reflecting on the concept of Adistana and maybe even the experience of Adistana, what my hope really is, is much bigger than that. My hope is that Adistana can stay alive everywhere in our order and movement, that all of us as order members, the whole order and movement can be fed by that sense of blessing, nourished by that sense of blessing, but also in our own way be part of the stream of blessings. Because it's a stream, it has to keep moving. It's like any stream. It will go stagnant unless it keeps flowing. So we're in a very important time in our order and movement. We've been saying that for quite a while now. But it's still true. We're in the transition period from a founding teacher to whatever happens beyond the lifetime of that founding teacher. Now, hopefully, that transition is going to be long and it's going to be quite a while before we move into the next phase of it, as it were, the phase when we no longer actually have Banti physically with us. But we're definitely in that transition. And those papers from 2009 onwards have been a very important part <laughs> of that transition. They've given us a sense of clarity and a sense of, like, Banti's really wanted to clarify before he's you know, before he goes, he's really wanted to make sure that we're clear about what his teachings are, we're clear about what he's given us as an order. And I think he also wants to know that we're willing to pick it up, as it were, and carry it on. I was going to say run with it, but it doesn't feel like quite the right image. But, you know, that we're really willing to kind of to, to hold those lineages and to carry them on. So we're growing and we're diversifying. I say there's over 1,800 order members now. They're in many, many countries, different cultures. And we need to be sure that that centrifugal force that is the order and the movement moving outwards also has something centripetal to hold it together. And I guess what that is, is our common understanding of the centrality of going for refuge to the three jewels as understood within Sri Ratna. It's kind of obvious, isn't it? So a common understanding of our going for re the centrality of our going for refuge to the three jewels as understood and lived within our Tree Ratna ordering community. So we've had those, uh, those papers. At that meeting that I mentioned where Banti said, talked about the lineages, I think it was at the same meeting, we talked about things that were going to be in this paper, what is the Western Buddhist order and some of us had expressed some concerns and things we weren't sure about and, you know, what we liked and asked questions, etc. At the very end of that meeting, and I've said this before in talks, but patiently, forgive me please for repetition, but at the very end of it, Damarati said to Banti, at the end of the question and answers, he said, is there anything else, Banti, you'd just like to say to us? And he kind of thought about it, sitting in his big wing armchair. And he sort of leaned forward and he said, yes, I think you can take this as the refounding of the order. I could just finish there. <laughs> but I won't. Um, it was a very strong moment, actually. It was a really strong moment. For me, it was strong in a number of ways. Viscerally, it was very strong. And there was an element to it, which was to do with the juxtaposition of this rather frail elderly, slightly, you know, bedraggled in the sense that he needed a haircut, man, Englishman, just sitting in his big wing armchair. And then this vajric force that kind of came out as he said that, you know, just, you may consider this the refounding of the order. And at which point he said, you know, thank you very much. And he got up and kind of shuffled out. You know, and I remember Mahamati, I think it was, going to help him to leave the room. And I think the rest of us just all sat there. <laughs> what was that? And uh, there was something very sort of powerful about that. And what I take him to mean by that as a refounding of the order, it's not that everything that went before counts for nothing. It's not something, it's not a break with what went before. But neither is it business as usual. So it's business as usual only in the sense that it's built upon what there was before. 
But Banty's also asking each and every one of us, and he says it in each of those papers, look at this, read it, take it seriously. If you can't read it because you find it too dense or too, you know, some of them are long, some of those papers are long, people don't always get on with them. Find a way of finding out what's in them. <laughs> you know, make sure that you're either, you know, get somebody to give you a precy of them or something. But just, you know, Banty's really asking us to take on board the ideas in those and to really look at them as the kind of the building bricks or the building blocks of our community. You know, to really sort of take them on board and think about them and come into relationship with them. So it's business as usual in that sense, that it's still building on what there was before. It's a kind of middle way. Banty was very clear he didn't want us to dismiss everything that happened before, but nor did he want us just to carry on as if nothing new had happened. So that's the, the, uh, the ground, the koan that we inhabit, is the continuity from all that we've done before and the opening up to the Adistana of Banty through those papers, through our connection with him, through what we, we can learn and take into the future. They clarify principles. And, you know, we, we are at, in, in this transition point, I guess we need to really ask ourselves, what can we do towards the future? And all that might be is just carry on practising as I'm practising right now. You know, it might be nothing very dramatic, but it's kind of making conscious that everything that we do is part of that, that we all of us have an effect. So the world needs the Dharma. You'll recall that Adistana is a place for the warrior to stand. So the warrior stands upon Adistana, but she also creates the conditions for Adistana to spread. So that's business as usual, because the world has always needed the Dharma. And the world still needs the Dharma. And I suspect the world will always need the Dharma. So in that sense, it's the continuation of 2,500 more years of people really trying to awaken, people trying to see through the selfishness, see through the things that tie them and bind them, break free of that and actually be awake and awake with compassion to each other. So in that sense, it's business as usual. And it's business as usual in terms of Tri Ratna. It's a continuation of trying to create spiritual community. So may Adistana be a powerful force for grace and blessings shared by her, our whole order and community, not only here in Herefordshire, of course, but throughout the globe, throughout the world. May any blessings that emanate be blessings imbued with bodhicitta. So the talk was called Business as Usual, Adistana and the Bodhicitta. So the Bodhicitta is where it begins. The Bodhicitta is what makes it alive and the Bodhicitta is what's needed for the continuation of what we have. Many, many, many times, many, many, many of us quote this little quote from... Uh, the talk that Banty gave in 1990... No, sorry, from the My Relation with the Order, where he talks about setting the order in motion. So, business as usual, I'm going to read it. He says, Not long ago, I spoke of my having taken upon myself the onerous responsibility of founding the Western Buddhist Order. I indeed took that responsibility upon myself, and it was indeed an onerous one. Nonetheless, there are times when, far from feeling that it was I who took on the responsibility, I feel that it was the responsibility that took on me. There are times when I am dimly aware of a vast, overshadowing consciousness that has, through me, founded the order and set in motion our whole movement. That's Adistana. That's the Adistana that worked through Bante to set our order and movement in motion. That's the Adistana that he has given us. And that's the Adistana that we can honour and continue and make even stronger. So we can create the conditions, not for the arising of the Bodhicitta, but for its continuation 
and for its play in the world. And Banti also talks in the 1999 talk about what will happen if we're in harmony. When we're spiritually united, we will be the locus for the manifestation of the bodhicitta. So may we be that. May Adistana geographically be a locus for many, many, many things. But may we as an order be the locus for the bodhicitta. So where the bodhicitta has not yet arisen, may it arise. Where it has arisen, may it flourish. And where it flourishes, may it never die. May its Adistana spread forever, for generation upon generation upon generation. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 